friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and thank you for joining us again this week on Conversations with Consequences. This week, we will be talking to Kay Heimowitz. She's a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and writes for City Journal, a great publication. She'll be joining us to discuss her recent piece at the Institute for Family Studies entitled Still Coming Apart. It's an analysis about marriage and family and how single motherhood is too often a determinant on a child's success. But first, my dear TCA colleague and co-host Lee Sneed is here with me to welcome her husband, Carter Sneed, back to the show. He's a law professor at Notre Dame University and the director of the De Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture. They have a new program there at the center called the Women and Children First Initiative, working towards a better post-Roe world. Welcome to the show, Carter. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Carter, you're a law professor at the University of Notre Dame, and Notre Dame is the iconic Catholic university of the United States, I would say, even though we have a university called the Catholic University. Yeah, but there's that's, something that's... about Notre Dame that inspires the American imagination and in so many levels. Not a time for us to get into it here. But you're a big part of the of the reason that Notre Dame is, is in my opinion, sticking with um, these very important Catholic principles that, in a way, the whole country relies on. Well, well, I appreciate you saying that, and we definitely think of ourselves in that way at Notre Dame. And I'm fortunate to be a faculty member and the director of the De Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture. The university is, of course, institutionally and formally committed to building a culture of life. We have a, a big display of that at the university, from the president all the way down to our students. The Right to Life Club is the largest student club on campus. We send a thousand kids to the March for Life in D.C. every year, including our president and other staff and faculty members. It's an honor to be there and taking our faith seriously and our Catholic mission seriously is a, a big part of the University of Notre Dame. And at the De Nicola Center, we consider ourselves to be an essential engine helping the university advancing its institutional commitments in that way. Let me ask you, when I mentioned to you about the, the iconic character of, of Notre Dame and the way it, it keeps its Catholic principles, you immediately pivot to being pro-life. Um, people have asked me before, many times over the course of the last years, why do Catholics concentrate so much on being pro-life? So maybe you're the perfect person to answer that. Well, it's a good question. Obviously, being pro-life is, in one way, it's the, kind of the most countercultural manifestation of the Catholic Church and Catholic institutions like Notre Dame's commitment to human dignity and the common good. A lot of people, thankfully, a lot of institutions and people share the Catholic Church's commitment to caring for the stranger and the migrant or the poor or the environment or uh, other other sort of aspects of what is sometimes described as social justice. Most universities, most institutions will explain and, and hold themselves out as supporting those interests. And of course, we do as well. And the, and the church does as well. But the one, some of the things that set the church apart is its unswerving commitment to the human dignity and the intrinsic equal value of every human being, no matter who they are, no matter what where they are, no, ma no matter what people think of them, and that includes the unborn child as well as her mother and, and, and family. And so I, I, I usually focus on the pro-life issue, A, because I think it's such a grave question. We have uh, somewhere around a million abortions a year in the United States, and until recently, we're basically prohibited at the state level and the federal level, the political branches from doing anything about it to protect unborn children and extending care and concern to their mothers as well. And if an institution is seriously Catholic, uh, in addition to all of those other other goods that I just sketched out that are shared across a wide spectrum of, of institutions. Being pro-life, it seems to me, is a, a sign of contradiction. It's a sign that sets us apart, and it takes courage as an institution to be pro-life, especially in the world of elite academia. And so that that is, my mind does go to that. But again, even more basically, the idea that everybody matters, everybody counts, and the weakest and most vulnerable among us, the, the unborn child is, is among the weakest and most vulnerable member of the human family. And to intentionally and systematically 
systematically try to create a world in which every unborn child is born and welcomed into life and cared for throughout his or her life, along with her mom and family, is a distinctive element of the church's contribution to the public square and to the public imagination. And, and um, at Notre Dame, it's something that we're proud of and, and, and I think distinguishes us from other universities and sadly from other Catholic universities, I have to say. So not to throw rocks at other Catholic institutions of uh, higher learning or lower learning, because I, I think that we can also talk about high schools and even elementary schools. Why are so many institutions of Catholic learning graduating students who are passionate about the climate and passionate about social justice, but not passionate about human life and all its manifestations? Is, is it a lack of, of courage or it, is it a kind of, from what your explanation is, is it them just going along and doing the easy things and not not swimming against the culture? It, it, I think it would probably, probably varies from place to place. For those people who are pro-life at those institutions, the failure to do that, I think, could arguably be a failure of nerve to a failure to, to stand up and be counted in a way that would might alienate uh, you or, or your colleagues from other elite institutions in the country. I mean, one of the things about being Catholic in America is we's, we've, always, we've always been tempted to suppress what's distinctive about ourselves. We've always been tempted to hide under a bushel basket the things that make us different so that we can get into that country club or get into that elite university or get that job at that fancy private equity firm or what have you. But but we have to resist that temptation. And it seems to me that another problem, another problem with Catholic institutions is those that don't attend carefully to hiring. You have to hire people, and they don't have to be Catholic necessarily, but you have to hire people who are passionate about the institution and its mission. And if you don't do that, and if you leave that unattended, you end up with a faculty or a staff or even a leadership of a university that does, that it's not about courage. They actually just don't agree. They, they are not themselves pro-life. They don't see it as an issue of basic justice alongside those other important questions. And so they don't uh, they don't pursue those those matters or teach their students to care about those things. Carter, what would you say to a criticism of Catholics that oh people say oh you Catholics um, you, you spend too much time and energy on the pro life question. There's so many other things to to worry about. Why are you a single issue person? Well, I don't I don't think I'm a single issue person. I don't think Catholics are single issue people. I think that uh, because of what it make because it is in the mind of elite culture to be provocative or problematic to be pro-life, that's what they focus on. But the Catholic Church does not simply focus on the question of abortion, although it is deeply important because no other issue that I'm aware of involves the intentional killing uh, by law of an entire segment of the human family on an industrial scale. I mean, that, that, that to me is something that gets your attention. And of course, it's not, I mean, you, you, I don't think we need to compare it to other issues, but it is a pressing and extraordinary issue. If we do credit the proposition, which we should, because it's a matter of basic science and essential you know, moral reasoning, that the unborn child is one of us and deserves uh, the, the basic protection of the law and moral concern, the fact that until, you know, until recently, uh, the Supreme Court said our Constitution forbade us from protecting unborn children. And since 1973, there have been 63 million abortions. I'm not aware of any. I mean, it's the, it's it's one of the leading causes of death in America. It is It pits mothers against children. It, just, it deforms and corrupts the practice of medicine. It bends and corrupts our law. I mean, it's hard to see any particular issue that is as grave and as problematic as the life issue. But of course, the, if you, you look to Pope Francis, you look at the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, you look at, you know, pastors and bishops and cardinals around the country, they, they're able to do a whole lot at once. And in fact, caring for the unborn child is part of a broader program of human dignity and the common good and has to be essential to it, without which it sure looks empty and problematic. It's a very strange thing to focus on you know, other, other kinds of questions while you ignore this fundamental question. That's a wonderful answer, Carter. Um, it should be broadcast <laughs> across the country because there is a lot of confusion on that score, I think, of... Um, about Catholics and, and the way we feel so passionately be passionately about being pro-life, you know, along with other of our co-religionists in the in the Christian other Christian sects. And Lee, you and I are both moms and yeah. you have teenagers like me and young adults. You have a young adult, don't you? One of your children that's, is a young that's 17. Yeah. So almost a young adult. Yeah. Almost a young right. adult. I find that raising them to be pro-life is protective of them in so many ways. What about you? Absolutely. And I love that, you know, his he and his friends look forward to either child 
traveling to D.C. for the March for Life or attending our local March for Life every year or, you know, one or the other or both, that they all agree on it, that when we just adopted our fourth child, that that was really celebrated, that his friends were, you know, everyone was like losing their minds. They were so excited and fighting to be the first to see the new baby and that babies are just without a doubt good news among he and his friends. And you know, and there is a certain innocence about all of them because of that, because and they all they all at this young age, even with their, you know, crazy TV shows and pop music and, you know, normal teenage stuff. They really value marriage and family in a way that I think really comes from growing up in a culture of life. Well, I think we're 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 uh, raising the salt of the earth in a sense, right? When mm-hmm. you see the when you see the greater culture and and the way that the things the, the beautiful things of life, family and tradition and and God are sort of being swept aside in this in this mad mad cultural rush to I don't know where we're heading. <laughs> I always think we've reached the limit and then we go a little further. <laughs> but you but you are doing your your part very much, uh, Carter, uh, at the De Nicola Center. We really want you to uh, to talk to us about the Women and Children First Initiative because well, why don't you tell us about it? Or I could read a short description um, from the website and then you can elaborate. Why, why sure. don't we do that? This initiative is our signal contribution to the ongoing effort to care for women, children, born and unborn, and families in need through research, teaching, service public engagement, and witness across a variety of disciplines and contexts, including such complex issues as healthcare, housing, education, employment, poverty, racial justice, criminal justice reform, adoption and foster care, religious liberty, and international human rights. That's a very long statement that encompasses so many different things. I like it very much because it puts all our talk about being a welcoming place for, for, for mothers who are expecting babies and families, it puts it in the broad context in which it belongs. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's that's exactly what we mean to, to do. So we anticipated and hoped and prayed that uh, in the Dobbs case that Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey would be overturned and that the question of how to care rightly for mothers and babies and families could be returned to the political branches so that we could deliberate and pass laws and enact policies and in our own private spheres do everything we can to create a welcoming world that that supports and cares for moms and babies and families throughout their entire lives. And so we thought that it was important that Notre Dame uh, be a leader in this space as the the the, the Nicholas Center being the the, the leader at Notre Dame on questions of culture of life matters. We took it upon ourselves to, to, to dream big and to think carefully about how, what exactly is a post-row landscape going to look like? How can we help to shape it? And at a, as a university, how can we influence the, the environment so that moms and babies and families get the care that they need? And as you said, we view it as a broadly systemic and comprehensive question. It involves a wide variety of things. It doesn't just involve protecting unborn children in the law. Of course, it involves that, but it, it goes way beyond that. It involves creating systems of care and concern uh, for women who experience uh, unplanned pregnancies to, to care for them before, during, and after they give birth and, uh, and to help families. And so uh, concretely, we, we've uh, begun a, a series of initiatives, again, connected to research and teaching and service and public witness. Uh, our first uh, initiative was it was a research study that's ongoing to study uh, maternal group homes. We're working with a partner at Notre Dame, uh, an excellent partner at Notre Dame, a bunch of economics professors and social scientists who uh, are helping to conduct a study of five different maternal group homes in the United States and trying to figure out what practices and policies at those uh, institutions have the highest and most positive impact for moms and babies and families and we're we're going to we're going to continue to support that study and then we're going to publicize its results and disseminate its results to other maternal group homes so that they can learn from that and benefit from that we uh, assembled a group of physicians uh, pro life physicians to talk to come together to talk about uh, what it means to be a pro life physician both in terms of how do you negotiate life and something that you're well aware of as a pro life physician of course to how to negotiate that world and also to think about caring for moms babies and families, especially in underserved communities and and communities of color. Um, We have a legal group, that group of legal scholars who are coming together to map out all the questions that are going to arise in the wake of of Dobbs, issues that are going to come up. I I actually testified uh, in court a couple weeks ago in Kentucky in in a state court uh, hearing as an expert witness on on bioethical questions. And Monique Chereau, who you might know, is an OBGYN, fantastic, brilliant woman who is a fellow at the DeNicola Center for the next two years. She also testified as a medical expert witness 
in the case, uh, trying to defend Kentucky's pro-life laws. And then, uh, of course, we uh, are going to engage in more social science research, uh, academic programming, and um, internship opportunities for our students and leveraging the great asset that we have at Notre Dame. Uh, our students, we have undergraduates and graduate students at the DeNicola Center. We have 350 of them who are affiliated with the center. We call them our Soren Fellows, named for Father Soren, the founder of the university. And so we are very excited and, and we're moving ahead on all those fronts. Carter, you just mentioned um, as part of your the research arm of this initiative, the best practice research about from the maternal homes. And you know, you said that you would share that, disseminate that to maternal homes so that they could, if they choose to include those changes or improvements um, to better serve these women and children. What some of the other research you're doing, is it done primarily by Notre Dame scholars? Are you also getting scholars from other institutions like you listed or and and who the audience for that research? Who's going to read that research? Yeah, it's a great question. So the Maternal Group Home Project is our internal social scientists at Notre Dame uh, in our economics department and a part of a wonderful organization at Notre Dame called the Laboratory for Educational or sorry, the Laboratory for Economic Opportunities uh, run by Bill Evans, who is uh, one of our board members, faculty fellows and Jim Sullivan and Heather Reynolds is the director of that center. She used to run Catholic the charities in Fort Worth, Texas, and she's an amazing person. So we're in, it's an internal group that's conducting that study, but we're certainly not limited to that. We have a broad network, both nationally and internationally, scholars uh, who are social scientists who can do original research, who can evaluate literature. Uh, we have our, our legal scholars are, are both from Notre Dame and outside of Notre Dame. We have a faculty member from Harvard University. We have uh, private practitioners who used to work in government uh, in this uh, consulting group. And um, uh, and so we are it is it, it is both inside at Notre Dame, but as well as uh, following our network of scholars and friends uh, around the world. You know, reading through that through, through the, the longish statement that mentions so many different ways that women and your women and children first initiative um, hopes to delve into. You know, you mentioned healthcare, housing, education, employment, poverty. It, it seems to me thinking of I've been doing a lot of thinking since Dobbs about how abortion changed the cultural landscape of the United States, uh, of the West, basically, since 1973, since the 70s. And it seems to me that the world has, our culture, the United States has become a country that's very hostile to children in, in general. Like it's, it's hard to have children, even if you're a married couple, you need, apparently you need two incomes. Now with inflation, that's worse. Um, you need two incomes. How many children can you possibly have when both mom and dad are working? Who's taking care of the children when, when mom is at work? Who, um, that's poverty, you know, or, or even middle class, middle classness. You don't have to even be poor to be caught in that snare. Um, the incredibly high cost of higher education. Everyone wants to have children and send them to college. Nobody wants to say, well, I, I, I'm going to have all these children, but I'll never be able to send them to college. They'll just have to get by on, 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 on you know, some other, some other way. Um, so what about this whole big culture we've built since abortion? When abortion made children optional, completely optional, we built yeah. a world after that. So how do we get that world back to a world of openness to children? Yeah, it's a great question, and I think it goes well beyond abortion. I mean, the Catholic Church has a deep wisdom on this question, and people make fun of the Church for being opposed to contraception. Uh, they think that that's backwards. The idea of fracturing and severing the relationship between sex and family and marriage is, uh, I think, has been corrosive of, of the notion that children and family and, and marriage are all deeply and intrinsically linked, um, and that... Uh, and, and you even hear that, I mean, you, you, and, and so it has it has echoes in the abortion context when people talk about the notion of unplanned pregnancies and 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 you know, and the idea that you know, when you've severed in your imagination the relation between sex and pregnancy and babies, the idea of becoming pregnant when you have sexual intercourse is something like a natural disaster. It's just mm -hmm. shocking happen has no connection to your own to, to choices that you've made on your own. Um, but uh, I'll tell you what. Uh, Something that really jumped out at me when I was testifying in Kentucky, the uh, ACLU, which was arguing, I think, really <laughs> a surprisingly implausible proposition that the Kentucky uh, Constitution of 1891 has an uh, guarantees a right to abortion. Uh, that was their argument. And they put Wait, on these. Did you say 1891? Yeah, the Kentucky Constitution of 1891, according to the ACLU must have an, an unwritten right to abortion in it. Now, that, just to say that just is to to say that, <laughs> a ridiculous yeah. proposition. But nevertheless, the 
the uh, well, I'll, 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 I'll not comment further on that. But but the point is, is that um, they, they put on an expert witness and, and they thought that this expert witness was really a valuable witness in advancing the cause of abortion rights. And his entire testimony, he's an economist from Texas A&M, his entire testimony could be reduced to the proposition that having children ruins your life. <laughs> having a child is the worst thing that you can do for your educational attainment. It's the worst thing you can do for your for your earning potential. It's the worst thing you can do for your happiness. And therefore, abortion is a way of avoiding the catastrophic consequence of having a child. And it's even worse, according to his testimony, if you are poor or a person of color. Having a child, if you're poor, or having a child if you're a person of color is catastrophic for your well-being and flourishing. It blew me away. I was sitting there and I say, you basically you're saying that children are a, a, a disaster. Children are a catastrophic event, um, and uh, and and they they're unapologetic in that argument. And that I think they they, they make that argument seeing the landscape that you've described, the landscape that's hostile to children. Uh, and how do we create? And and you see the the birth rate dropping in the United States, and you see political polarization along the lines of people who have children versus people who don't have children, and how they vote completely different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's 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 staggering to think about. And we have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work to do to think about how to create a world in which children are welcomed and loved and a blessing. And as Lee said, you know, when a baby shows up, everybody's excited and happy about it. I mean, there's actually a movie called Knocked Up, which is a, a kind of a vulgar movie. Um, but it's but it's funny and it's deep in a lot of ways. It's about an unplanned pregnancy. And there's this amazing scene juxtaposing two different reactions uh, one with the male who the, the father is talking to his dad, who's kind of like a pothead, a schlubby dad who's saying, listen, life doesn't care about your plans. A baby is a blessing. It's always a welcome oh. thing. And it juxtaposes that with the wealthy woman who's pregnant talking to her mother saying, just get rid of it like your sister did. She got rid of it and then had her, had a real baby. Had a real baby. <laughs> and, it, and it's a startling contrast. And I mean, and, and so and, and it's the most pro-life thing, you know, um, Judd Apatow made the film, you know, he, uh, and I'm not, he, I, I don't understand him to be a particularly outspoken pro-lifer, but you can't watch that scene and come away thinking that the right answer is to, to, to kill the unborn baby. Well, and, and you mentioned the, the, the dropping birth rate. There's a demographic winter facing all of us in the West, right? I mean, you can't sustain, uh, a, an economy where there are more retirees and people in nursing homes and ICUs than there are workers. And that that uh, that um, that light bulb hasn't doesn't appear to be going off in people's heads where they say, you know, we've created this world where abortion is your best option because children are disasters and they take away all your fun and all your personal liberty. Um, And now what do we do? Because now how do we convince people that children were a blessing after all and that we've you know taken these blessings away from from ourselves? What do you think, Lee? Do you think that the demographic, the coming demographic winter will will have people rethinking that attitude? I think it might. I think when I see, well, you know, I have to say, I've always been really impressed with the Notre Dame Right to Life students. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked, we, you and I just talked about our young adults and our families. Carter talked about, you know, their involvement with the Denicola Center and the Soren Fellows. And the one thing that's really impressed me about them, especially, is that they make official events where they reach across the aisle to the other students on campus who really disagree with them mm-hmm. on so many ways. Even on Notre Dame's campus, there are people who are, you know, vehemently pro-choice. And the leadership, the student leadership has always been so incredible. And I, uh, that they give me hope for sure that, you know, the things are changing. And I wondered though, that made me wonder too, though, Carter, in your research and teaching and other initiatives, are you finding anybody on the other side that's going to be willing to collaborate with you to, to work on the things that maybe we all can agree on? Or is that, is that a plan? Is that part of the initiative? It is part of the initiative. It is a plan. And I have reached out. And again, it's so important. It's always a good reminder that there's no substitute for, for friendship in trying to build a world that's welcoming to everyone. You know, I have friends and colleagues who don't agree with me on the life issues who nevertheless care very deeply about the poor mm-hmm. and care and housing. And I, we do have plans to reach across the aisle, so to speak, and to uh, contact those folks and to ask them if they're willing to partner 
on matters, even though we don't agree on the question of Dobbs or abortion, whether or not they're willing to come together to try to find some sort of solution to moms who need housing or healthcare or employment or addiction recovery, these kinds of questions. You know, the questions of racial justice and criminal justice reform, which obviously feed into this issue, are uh, hopefully we can find some people who are willing to make common cause. And there are people that I you know, care about very deeply that I'm optimistic will work with us. Uh, and we will certainly let you know as soon as, uh, as soon as we move to that phase of the project. Carter, how can people learn more about the, the Women and Children First Initiative? And how could, is there any way for them to participate or to support it? How, tell um, us about that. They should all, they should, um, they should go to our website at ethicscenter.nd.edu. And, uh, and they can, they can contact uh, us, um, by email, the, uh, the the person who so we have uh, several wonderful people who are working on this project, and uh, I would suggest that if they want to get involved, they should reach out to our uh, culture of life program manager, who is uh, our, the wonderful Petra Farrell is her name. She runs all of our culture of life stuff, not just this, uh, and her email address is w f a r r e l one. That's the number one at nd.edu. That's W-F-A-R-L-R-E-L-1 at nd.edu, two R's. And and she uh, will will help to uh, get folks involved. I want to get in on that pro-life doctor thing. I'm going to send her an email myself. <laughs> oh, we, sure. That's fantastic. We'd love to have you on, on that. Well, it's time to go. But I, before um, we stop, uh, we stop, I want to congratulate both of you. And on behalf of all our listeners, this is the first time Lee has been on since the new baby. Um, Carter and Lee, you mentioned it or I wouldn't be bringing it up, but Carter mm -hmm. and Lee adopted a beautiful baby boy. Um, how long ago? Tell me. Uh, just turned four months yesterday. Oh. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yep. Well, yep. I know what that's like. It's about about as cool and beautiful and gorgeous a thing as can happen to a family is to bring a new baby home, no. especially a baby that somehow miraculous, miraculously becomes yours without the benefit of biology. <laughs> Absolutely. No, his brothers are over the moon. The whole house is just full of sunshine and love. And um, everyone just, they just all love having a baby in the house. They, yeah, they dote on him. And he's the most, I can't imagine a baby more loved than him. <laughs> well, may God bless all of you abundantly. And also your work, Carter, at the um, Women and Children's First Initiative. Thank you, you so too, much. Casey. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and my next guest is Kay Heimowitz. She is the William E. Simon Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and she's also a contributing editor at City Journal, a really wonderful publication. You can also catch her work at the Institute for Family Studies, where she wrote an, a really wonderful piece recently on the 14th of this month, asking the question, has marriage become irrelevant to the lower middle class and to women's decisions about childbearing? We've asked her to talk to us about that component, the component of marriage as a requirement for childbearing and what does it mean for America that uh, single motherhood is becoming more and more accepted and more the norm. Welcome to the show, Kay. Oh, thank you, Gracie, for having me. Kay, I've been following your work for many years on City Journal, where you're uh, an editor. I find your work very wonderful because you bring numbers and reason and logic to many dark spots in the way that we understand culture in America. Uh, that is a lovely way of putting it, and uh, I'm going to use it in the future. Oh, good. You know, some of the things you, you, you write about, you write a lot about uh, fathers in the home, for instance, something that we're very interested in here. The future of a world without family as it seems that the direction that we're going in. And you, you talk about these things and you write about them and these are difficult topics because many times when we hold up one kind of model as being a more successful model, people say that we're being uh, discriminatory or, or, or asking for things from people that they can't possibly achieve. Do you get this criticism sometimes? Oh, definitely. And I think it, uh, that viewpoint lies behind a lot of the pushback to the undoubtedly true, unquestionable data 
that we now have about the effect of family breakdown on children. And as uh, as I've written about more recently, the effect that it's had on the country as a whole when it comes to poverty and, ine- and inequality. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll be talking about that some more. Yes, because these, uh, to many people, these seem like intractable problems that have happened. Sort of a tsunami has taken over the United States as though though it's a, a, an act of God, no? Or some disaster. Yeah, I think people see it somewhat that way. There are also many people in the sociology business in particular who are ambivalent about the family. Remember that the academy uh, and sociology in particular, has been very influenced by feminism that said, well, you know, marriage, you know, it can be so patriarchal and it can, it holds women back from their careers and men won't do their share of the house care, of the housework and the child care. And that leaks into any discussion we have about this data on the family because nobody wants to privilege to use a familiar word on the left, to privilege the family, the nuclear family, the two-parent family, for that reason. They're worried that women will be submissive to men. There's also the problem of poverty and race related to this. So the biggest group, the group that shows the biggest decline in marriage are black, and people are very uneasy about talking about that marriage breakdown in, in the black community because it seems like it seems like it's criticizing them. It's become something of a norm, the single mother family in among blacks. I should mention that about 72% of black children are born to single mothers. There are very few children, black children, growing up with the expectation that they should or will marry before they have children. So it's become de- what, what some sociologists call deinstitutionalized. Marriage no longer serves the purpose in their minds of uh, that it used to, of being the arena in which we raise children, raise the next generation. Well, and in this piece uh, that you wrote for the Institute for Family Studies, which is fabulous, you, it was published July 14th, and it's on, the, on their website. You drill down on some of the statistics, very troubling statistics, about yeah. the correlation between unmarried motherhood and children being raised in homes without their fathers and and class immobility and the way that being born in that situation pretty much freezes you in place and and the and the wonderful this wonderful part about America that we want to depend on that where people can be upwardly mobile with hard work and effort seems to be out of out of reach for the people that most need it right i do believe that the family inequality is at the root of or integral, integral to the overall inequality, economic inequality. It's not just because you don't have two earners in the house. It's also because the children themselves don't seem to do as well as the kids who are raised in two-parent families, regardless of their in, the household income. Mm-hmm. So it, what that means is that children who are growing up in single mother homes are disadvantaged uh, doubly. They have less, they're probably going to have less money, household income. They're also going to have less of whatever it is, and nobody is uh, quite clear on what it is, that the two-parent family provides for kids. It's probably just dual attachment to mothers and fathers, which seem to enrich uh, their lives. Uh, it's also, of course, the help that mothers get from fathers or in that fathers' own attachment to children. I mean, I you know, one of the other themes that I've taken out of this data that I've been studying for, for decades now is that men, too, are deeply discouraged and disadvantaged by our new norms of single mother family because they no longer have a role, an important role to play within the family, or at least they see it that way often, because women seem to be saying they can do it themselves, and they don't want to be tied down to a man who is not, uh, doesn't have a steady job. There are real economic reasons behind this. One of the things that I should acknowledge here is in agreement with a lot of the 
more progressive thinkers on this issue is that there has been a huge shift in the economy so that men, particularly working class men, no longer have such an advantage, an economic advantage over working class women. In fact, it can be quite the opposite. So that they are far less, the term that's often used, they're far less marriageable. Women, despite years of feminism, uh, women still want to marry men who make more money or at least as much money than they do. It may seem retrograde and uh, uh, unjust to some people, but there's plenty of data to suggest that that norm has not shifted, and I would bet won't shift. But in the current economy, it's very difficult for men, working class men, lesser skilled men, to find the kind of work that would sustain a family in a way where women would would satisfy a lot of uh, prospective wives. But Kay, you talk about this in the article, and it makes a lot of sense to me. And yes, I can I can understand why a man who makes less than than one as a woman wouldn't be a good marriage prospect. It wouldn't seem like that from a material sense. But can women really afford to not marry and to bring up children on their own? I mean, it seems like a huge economic disadvantage and from a thousand directions to to be raising a child by oneself or two children or three without the financial input of a father, but without also the support of uh, someone who can take a hand, you know, when mom is sick and maybe can't work for a few months? It depends what you mean by can't afford. The fact is they are managing. Enough women out there are choosing to have their children outside marriage uh, and are choosing not to marry, not to marry completely. I mean, we have a, a higher proportion of unmarried young adults uh, than we've ever had in, in our history. So somehow women are managing Many of them are uh, managing with the help of government benefits, especially the poorer uh, women who are frequently high school dropouts or at least only have a high school degree. They, you know, are getting food stamps and if they need it and all kinds of housing support. Mm-hmm. There is a huge infrastructure of benefits that are helping to support the single mother family. Do you think that's, you know, think do you think that's to, uh, incentivizing single motherhood? It's enabling it is, is the term that I would mm-hmm. prefer to use. Mm-hmm. There, you know, a lot of these, uh, a lot of women would have so much more trouble just doing the basics for their kids. It's still very difficult, as as you're pointing out. But I suppose between their jobs, the money they make from their jobs, the help maybe of extended family, although that's not clearly working out so well for a lot of women, and supposedly help from the father, non-residential father, which also doesn't work out very well. They seem to be trying to do it this way. I guess they would prefer to have a father in the house for their child, many of them, but not the men that they've been consorting with and that they're likely to see as suitable husbands. So you go through the economic reasons in in your piece about why women might not be choosing to marry before they have children or in order to have children, but you also conclude that there are social, cultural reasons for the abandonment of marriage. And and to me that that means that seems very you know very very true and it must be something I think it's something that we all ought to consider very carefully as we make um, decisions together for our culture. So there's no question that the attitudes or the value attached to marriage uh, and uh, two-parent homes declined after the 1970s. That's when the divorce rate went up uh, uh, by a huge amount, um, and we started to see more single-parent families um, due to divorce. Now, what we're seeing is a larger percentage of single-parent families due to non-marriage. That is, the women who are having children, uh, raising children alone, most of them have not been, have never been married, uh, which suggests a, a change in attitude. And that's um, what we do know to be true. What we've done is normalized um, uh, single-parenthood. Uh, And I don't mean that we should, you know, not taking from this that that we should be stigmatizing or, you know, branding somebody with a scarlet A, but we have to consider what it means to be raising a generation after generation of children 
to assume that that uh, single parenthood is just fine and dandy when we know that it is the second best, or at the, at the very least, second best, uh, and not good for the next generation. Now, um, what I think probably happened when we look at the history over the last uh, decades is that uh, it was originally a, a, a large measure, an economic decision. Uh, the men just were not, as I said before, marriageable. But I think by this point, it has become the norm. Uh, it has become an acceptable norm, and it is no longer just an economic decision. Mm-hmm. And this, ha- this seems to have tragic consequences for the future of our country in general. Um, let me, you know, you mentioned something in your piece that I found very interesting, and it, you said immigrant parents are generally more likely to be married than American-born parents. Um, that's, yes. That, to me, is a very interesting statistical point. Um, I'm the child of immigrants. My parents had just emigrated here from Cuba uh, mm-hmm. when I was born, and things were extremely difficult for them. And they married and, and had a um, and raised a great family, and, and we all did great, and we had that upward mobility opportunity that America afforded us. Um, but I, I yeah. do believe it's because my parents were married. I, my mother could never have managed um, to put us all through school by herself or, or been able to raise my brothers by herself without a, without a fatherly influence. Right. So, um, yes. Uh, I, how old are you, Gracie? I'm 53. Yes. So in your generation, uh, it was still what people did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and among uh, most people are coming, most immigrants are coming from cultures where marriage is still much more normalized uh, than uh, it is in the U.S. right now. Um, even you know, a lot of people when when we begin to talk about this say, "Well, look, uh, non-marriage is very uh, common in, let's say, the Scandinavian countries," which is true, uh, but. They have replaced marriage with a pretty stable uh, and long-term cohabitation. Mm. That is, there's never been an official ceremony, but people are expected to stay together when they have children, mm-hmm. uh, and that is no longer the case uh, in our in our culture. We are, have the highest rate of single motherhood in the. Uh, believe in the world there may be a, a small east uh, there may be one country in the eastern europe that has higher um but we are the highest uh in certainly in the west and certainly in the developed the rich world uh and we are not doing a good job in creating the environment the culture that will sustain upward mobility mm-hmm. as you're as you're pointing out uh, and uh, I worry that a lot of these children uh, who of, of immigrants who are growing up with two parents will become accustomed to the idea that single motherhood is another choice that they can take. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and uh, people don't realize how much uh, norms really guide people's partnering choices. And... Um, the you know this is not just a personal choice; it is a choice that is enabled by the society, by the social system around us, uh, and I think more and more, not just for economic reasons but for social reasons, uh, we are saying we will enable, we will support um, as an equal the single parent family. Well, Kay, um, I'm a parent. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but um, I, I really love the way that you approach this with, with, with logic and reason and dispassion. And uh, thank you so much for, for joining us and thank you for your work. Where can our readers, uh, besides that the, at the Institute for Family Studies, which is at ifstudies.org, where, where our listeners can uh, read your piece called Still Coming Apart, where else can our listeners uh, access your work? They can also find my work at city-journal.org. Um, that's our web- That's the website where I post most of my articles. 
uh, with the occasional article at uh, Family Institute for Family Studies. Oh well, wonderful! And I'm a great I'm a I'm a devoted reader of City Journal, and I've I've uh, learned so much uh, knowledge and wisdom from that from that site. So thank you very much again for joining us, Kay. Thank you. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you. As we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, Jesus will get right to the heart of one of the most important questions any human being needs to answer. What am I living for? What am I working for? Many people live for money rather than for God. In the Gospel this Sunday, Jesus describes how we can easily make making money an idol. What the book of Ecclesiastes in the Sunday's first reading will call a vanity of vanities, or in other words, an ultimate waste of time. Jesus made his point by means of the image of a rich farmer who just continued to build larger silos to store his crops, totally unaware that his life was soon going to be over and that none of it would matter. With increased urbanization, few of us are farmers. Therefore, few of us would seek to build larger barns for produce. But many of us worry, and some are even obsessed, about increasing the size of a retirement account, pensions, bank statements, homes, even libraries. Probably the most fitting equivalent of our grain bins would be the explosion of storage units everywhere. When we no longer need anything for our day-to-day life, we just hoard it. We put it in a closet until we have no more room, then we move it to the cellar or the attic, and when those prove inadequate, we just get big storage lockers. What we should be doing when we no longer need something for regular use is to give it away to someone who does. But even when we're not using something, we still hold on to it. We still think we need it. Our possessions come to own us rather than the other way around. Jesus gives this parable about the farmer building larger grain bins, unaware that he would soon die, in response to someone in the crowds asking him, Teacher, tell my brother to share the the inheritance with me. Over the course of my priesthood, I've been shocked at how many times I've been asked to get involved in familial situations like the one Jesus was requested to resolve. The man obviously thought that his brother was wronging him and wanted Jesus, the just one, to intervene. I don't hesitate to add that this man's brother probably was wronging him. But underneath this appeal for justice, Jesus saw two things at play. First, the petitioner at a practical level was thinking that gaining the inheritance was more important than maintaining a good relationship with his brother. How many people today still think and act in these terms, allowing money or other vanities to separate them and keep them apart for years, decades, or even to the grave? Second, Jesus saw that despite what was likely a just request, the motivation underneath it was not justice, but primarily greed disguised as justice. That's why Jesus told not only the petitioner, but the whole crowd, beware of all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Problem for many of us and for so many of our contemporaries is that we think that life does consist in the abundance of possessions. We idolize the rich and famous. We watch programs and buy magazines about them, devouring whatever we can to get a window into their life. We put in long hours of work to try to secure a little bit of that life. While few of us spend much time setting our hearts on mansions, Bentleys, butlers, and chauffeurs, we do spend our time dreaming about and working for larger homes, new cars, housekeepers, and the like. We may pretend that because we're not rich, we're not greedy. Well, many of us are obsessed about money. Many of us can think about money and material concerns more than we can think about God. We can spend far more time dedicating ourselves to growing our wallets than our souls. But because most people around us are greedily addicted to material things too, we don't notice it. Pope Francis calls this a ferocious idolatry one that attacks savagely at our core and changes us. Yet how many in our culture worship this false god, working for hours on end at the cost of their health, marriages, family, and sometimes even their life, just to make more moolah. Sometimes people work themselves to death for their own survival or for the good of their families. But many times it's just for vanities, 
from material possessions we can't take with us as we die. As the saying goes, you never see a U-Haul behind a hearse because we can't take our possessions with us into the next life. The only thing we can take with us beyond the grave, the only thing that can fit through the eye of the needle that is the gate to heaven, is what we give away, our deeds of love for others. One of the surest signs that many of us in our contemporaries worship money would be the reaction that a pastor would get if he mentioned that the following Sunday, Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or Carlos Slim would be present at church giving a million dollars to everyone who came. Even if there were just going to be a lottery for one person to receive a million dollars, the church would be a mob scene. Many would arrive early. Many would relativize everything else they might have on the calendar. They might even spend the week praying for good luck. But many of those who would come for the chance at money don't come with excitement or at all when it's a question about meeting Jesus, hearing his words, receiving his body and blood within us, and progressing on the path to heaven. As Jesus says at the end of the Sunday's gospel, many strive like the foolish farmer in the parable to store up treasure for themselves, but not become rich in what matters to God. They're greedy for earthly possessions, but not hungry for God and his grace. Elsewhere in the gospel, Jesus said in absolute terms that we cannot serve both God and money. We have to make a choice. We're either going to serve God, and that's going to change totally the way we relate to money. We're going to serve money, and that ferocious idolatry is going to change the way we relate to God. This choice between God and mammon was the one offered to the rich young man, who approached Jesus knowing that something was missing from his life, even though he was keeping all the commandments. He came to ask Jesus what he needed to do to find fulfillment. Jesus told him that if he wanted to be perfected, to have it all, he needed, paradoxically, to sell his goods, give the money to the poor, become rich in heaven, and then come follow him. What he lacked was that he had too much. When faced, however, with the choice between Jesus and his stuff, between God and mammon, the young man chose his stuff and went away from Jesus sad. He couldn't free himself from a life consisting of possessions, a life that, while it can bring certain pleasures, can never bring happiness, because our hearts will always be restless, as St. Augustine famously reminded us, until they rest in God. This Sunday, Jesus will meet all of us like the rich young man and tell us that we need to make the same choice. With love, he will tell us to beware of all types of greed, of idolizing money, of serving mammon. He will encourage us and challenge us, call us and help us to choose not the path of vanity, the waste of our time on earth, but to seek heaven and place our heart and our treasure in what we can take with us when we die, the riches that pertain to God. Elsewhere, Jesus said that we children of the light need to be just as savvy in storing up for ourselves the things of heaven. So many others today are in securing worldly fortunes. Just as a money-hungry man or woman studies, works long hours, perseveres, and sacrifices various things we would like to do in order to get ahead in New York, Boston, Chicago, or L.A., so the Christian needs to work just as hard and just as concretely to get ahead in the new and eternal Jerusalem. Just as a business person needs to put away teenage habits, clothes, vocabulary, maturity, and irresponsibility, and especially vices like dishonesty and laziness, so the Christian, seeking an eternal treasure, must put away whatever will prevent our achieving the goal. We need to make the choices to grow rich in the things of God. One of the most important ways for us to store up a treasure in heaven, to treasure what God treasures, is by giving ourselves and our things away to others in love. The more we concretely serve others, the richer we are. We should all be making the time to grow this portfolio of charity. Sunday Mass is one of God's greatest gifts to help us seek the things that are above. When the priest says, lift up your hearts, and we respond, we've lifted them up to the Lord, that's a message not just for the liturgy, but for life. That's the principal conversion Jesus wants us to have. He wants us to lift up our hearts from the idols we so easily make of material things, praying that we will say with all our choices, we have lifted up our life to the Lord. In the Mass, we receive not just the greatest treasure in the world, Jesus himself, the pearl of great price, worth selling everything we have to obtain, but are helped by him to build not bigger grain bins, but far greater cooperation with all that he's trying to do in and through us as he seeks to lead us in this world and forever to a treasure that moths can't corrode, rust destroy, or the IRS tax. God bless you all. 
Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 